This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Does evolution undermine Christianity? As a Catholic theologian, you can imagine that my answer to this is no. But the interesting part is how we get there, and that's what I want to share with you tonight. We need to begin by looking at the Catholic Church's overall approach to faith and science, though, the general approach that will apply not just to evolution, but to any question related to faith and science. I drove by this sign at a church when I was in grad school. It says, reason is the greatest enemy that faith has. To me, that's so sad because the Catholic Church's approach is a harmony of faith and reason. They're friends, not enemies. The Catholic Church strives for a virtuous mean, a middle approach between the two opposing extremes of scientism and fideism. Scientism is the approach that holds that only science, only in the empirical realm, gives truth. And so their belief, and I call that a belief on purpose, is that everything can be explained through science, from the working of the brain to evolution to the Big Bang and beyond. No need for philosophy, no need for theology. Fideism, or faithism, on the other hand, is a belief that faith is the exclusive realm of truth, that everything can be explained by reference to the scripture or to the church, which Pope Benedict for Catholics calls ecclesiasticism. It's an ideology or an ism where only the church gives truth, and it trumps science where the two appear to disagree. John Paul II is a great model for the harmony of faith and reason, and he says that faith and reason are the two wings or the two ways on which the spirit soars to contemplation of God. For John Paul, truth cannot contradict truth. And echoing Thomas Aquinas, all truth, no matter what its source is of the Holy Spirit. So for the Catholic, it doesn't matter whether it's an atheist, a Muslim, a Hindu, whoever's saying it, it's from God if it's true. Thomas Aquinas, for his part, he liked to quote pagans. Aristotle, the philosopher, was a pagan. Uh, Averroes, a Muslim he quotes a lot, was the commentator. Uh, the Jew, Maimonides, was Rabbi Moses, affectionately deemed by Aquinas. So we have to be able to do that. And our model is St. Paul. I want to reflect upon Acts chapter 17, where Paul preaches at the Areopagus in Athens. You can still go there today. It's pretty fun. It's a bunch of rubble. Uh, but in St. Paul's day, they had all these different altars to different gods. And St. Paul says when he's trying to evangelize them, I noticed that as I passed by, there was an altar to an unknown God. Well, what you worship as unknown, this I declare to you. And he goes on to explain that there's only one God and he's returned in Jesus Christ. He's come to judge the living and the dead. But what is telling is Paul's method. He actually praises the Athenians for their devotion, that the fact they recognize there's something more to God, this unknown God. He quotes the poets, in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. Truths which, which we can agree as Catholics. So Paul uses that. Or if you want to go to the Old Testament, the great sort of founder of Catholic spiritual reading of Scripture, Origin of Alexandria, <laughs> reflecting upon the Exodus when the Jews stole all the property of the Egyptians when they left, he says that we should spiritually despoil the Egyptians. We should plunder all the truths that we find amongst the nations. This is what the church, in fact, did when we formulate the creed. We use terms from Greek philosophy, 
transubstantiation, our teaching about the Eucharist, the very word Trinity, the very term consubstantial, homoousios in the Greek, we owe to a dialogue with reason that didn't arise from Judaism or Christianity. So we've always been about this. What I want to do next then is just briefly give a little overview of three areas other than evolution where the Catholic Church applies this approach. Everybody knows about the Galileo affair. It gave the church a sort of black eye. But what is often missed is that Galileo wouldn't even have been doing his research if not for sponsorship of the church. The church has always been pro-science. And yes, Galileo was under house arrest. And yes, they were reticent. But there's this great line from that controversy I want to quote you. The Bible does not teach us how to go to heaven, but how the heavens go. Now, we were struggling to figure out how that applied to the issue of heliocentrism, namely that the earth revolves around the sun instead of vice versa, as had been assumed for centuries. And Galileo was a moment in that process of the church's reflection where we eventually now take it for granted, right? We all believe that the earth is revolving around the sun. It seems obvious to us. And the church has paved the way for that. But we also have to step back and remember what it was like in the 1600s. If I didn't have a telescope, guys, I would believe in geocentrism. Or if I didn't hear it from a physics professor, I would believe that the sun is moving instead of us. In truth, we're all moving, right? But anyway, that's a whole other point. Um, so we are moving around the sun, and the church has helped us get there. More recently, the Big Bang. Father Georges Lemaitre was a French priest who invented the idea of the, quote, primal, primeval atom. He was one of the founders of Big Bang cosmology. In fact, at the time, he was viewed with skepticism by the skeptics because it seemed to imply God's existence. The church is in favor of that. Another area I want to take a brief look at has to do with the human body. The popes call this human ecology. The church is pro-science with regard to sex and marriage. So, for example, the baby in the womb that has the same genetic structure from the time that baby is conceived through the birthing process until they're born, until they die. Uh, we're in favor of the science that shows they are a true human being with rights. And the identity of male and female is genetically identical, uh, <laughs> genetically distinct uh, creatures, right? The complementarity of the sexes, the church is in favor of that. So it's important that we look at all those together. But let's look at evolution specifically now. <laughs> I love this piece of art I found. So um, the picture of God creating Adam from Michelangelo is beautiful art, but it's almost certainly not the way it happened. So what you, you first had in terms of the history of human beings was a creature, when, when this first happens, that's truly human, but they're not going to be wearing a suit and tie like I am. right? So it's going to be a different picture than many of us have in our heads. The reason why evolution causes so many challenges for Christians is because atheists have been evangelical about it, and Christians have equally and oppositely counterreacted in a poor way. <clears throat> Let me quote to you Richard Dawkins, who presents the issue. Before Darwin came along, it was pretty difficult to be an atheist, or at least to be an atheist free of nagging doubts. Darwin triumphantly made it easy to be an intellectually fulfilled and satisfied atheist. So it would seem that now we can explain everything naturally, ergo, there's no room for God. How do you not respond to that challenge? Don't take the bait. 
It's an idolatrous conception of God. It's a very simplistic conception of God who pushes and pulls atoms and is one cause among many of the universe. And so according to this view, if you can explain, say, uh, the Big Bang, you now don't need God. But it's missing on something important, just to use the Big Bang for a moment. Even if you can account for all those natural causes, you still have to account why there's matter or energy in the first place. And so Dawkins or Stephen Hawking have not disproven God. Don't fall into that trap of thinking if you can give a natural explanation, therefore God does not exist. So what do you say on the positive side? This is one of my favorite quotes from Pope John Paul II. You want to embrace both faith and reason, and therefore science can purify religion from error and superstition. Religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can draw one another more fully into the truth. That's the reciprocity that we want to go for. Now, with regard to evolution in particular, I want to talk about the church's position on it. The church has never condemned it. The first time it was sort of explicitly really discussed was in 1950 by Pope Pius XII, who cautiously opened the door. He says that the soul can't evolve, soul can't evolve but the body can. So do some research, is basically his point. You fast forward, John Paul II famously called it more than a hypothesis. Getting to Pope Benedict, his successor, he speaks of many proofs, many pieces of evidence in favor of it. And the Vatican's International Theological Commission did a study of it and called the theory virtually certain due to the many converging evidences that support it. But even as I say this, guys, you don't have to accept evolution to be a Catholic. The church is not going to define as dogma a scientific matter. So you can be a perfectly good Catholic and have no opinion whatsoever, or even, frankly, not be a big fan of evolution. But we're not interested so much in what the possibilities are. We're interested in the plausibilities, the integrity of the faith, what actually harmonizes faith and reason. So we need to talk about what a theory is. Sometimes you hear it said that evolution is, quote, just a theory, like I have a theory right now, and it's that the Astros are going to win the World Series. Okay. (laughs) Um, I'm a Cubs fan, so this is not like a claim on the Astros being the best. Um, I know you're probably sorry for me at this moment in time. Okay, so I have this theory. But that's not really what a theory means in science. What you just said was a conjecture. So it's unfortunate that the word has that meaning today because in science, a theory is a well-established explanation of the data before us that's been time-tested. It's falsifiable. It's been confirmed. It's failed to be rejected. Uh, It's open to that rejection. So scientific theory is inherently open to rejection. You don't infallibly prove a scientific theory, and yet you still have certitude in it. What is the theory of evolution? Brief definition you could put forth. It's a process by which all life on Earth has gradually developed or descended from a common ancestor approximately 3.5 billion years ago. And within that, there's a lot of play, a lot of discoveries that have been made even in recent decades and that will always be made to refine dates and timelines and things like that. Okay, so in the next section of the talk, I want to walk through what Father Nicola Ostriaco, the great Dominican priest biologist, calls the web of evidence for evolution. I'm going to use some data that he uses. I'm going to draw upon many different sources here. And for those of us live, add some pictures to this. 
think of uh, this web or different angles that all point towards the same center, the different lines that converge upon a center. The first one and the most famous one is, of course, the fossil record. So, yes, the fossils and, quote, transitional fossils speak to evolution. Just to show you some fun things, my family likes to collect fossils. We like to travel to national parks. We live near a part of the country that used to be underwater and has a lot of neat marine fossils in it. So in my house, in our china cabinet, there's this corner with fossils, and I have a fossilized great white tooth and a fossilized megalodon tooth. There's a movie about that called The Meg. Totally fake. But it gives you a sense of how scary these things are. You see a great white tooth and a megalodon tooth. It, it's remarkable. And the megalodons all died out, uh, but you can trace shark size evolution. This is the point. Or to pick things that have been in my house before, I believe these are illegal now, but as a kid, I had a snakehead fish. And neat thing about those is they have a crotal lung in them, as you can find in other species. The lung gradually evolved as animals made the transition from water to land. So yes, you can do that. Whale evolution is specifically very interesting and more complete than a lot of the record. Whales evolved from hippo-like animals and until you get down through Tiktaalik, which is a major transition species, to the whales we have today. I'll talk about something fun about whales here in just a minute. And of course you can trace humans as well through their bones, through their skulls and so on and so forth. And that yields something like this that you can find on the Smithsonian or any kind of different established website that traces Homo sapiens back to earlier hominins, literally little man, so earlier humans, to Australopithecus and even farther back. So you have a, a lot of uh, humanoids or different versions of humans before you get Homo sapiens. And now all humans that are, are Homo sapiens. So now let's take a look at comparative anatomy another avenue into evolutionary theory. Uh, biologists will also call these homologous structures, similar structures that we find amongst different creatures. And let me quote John Henry Newman, the great saint, uh, who's a patron of Newman centers, Catholic centers on secular campuses. Newman will say that you have these converging lines of evidence for something, and he had the same view towards evolution, remarkably, when it was almost brand new, it's not that any one of these pieces of evidence proves it. It's that when you take them as a whole, it becomes implausible to have any other view, basically. So put these things together, or as a professor of mine once said, 20 years later, I still quote this, you can dodge a snowflake, but you can't dodge a snowstorm. Okay, so part of the snowstorm, which I hope doesn't happen anytime soon here, is if you look at whale fossils, they have interesting Flippers, because the flippers have hands inside them. Why would they have hands inside them? You could say God just made it that way, but it's because they used to have a function, because they used to be land animals. So that's pretty remarkable as an example. Or why do other species that are distant cousins, like chimps from whom we split six to seven million years ago, have so many human-like behaviors? There's a common ancestry there. So you can look at that, or you can look at vestigial organs, which are fossils in our bones. These are things that we still have in us that don't make any sense apart from evolution. This is a chart that goes through some examples. Goosebumps. Think about what goosebumps do. When I go in my backyard, my chickens are scared of me, even though they've been alive for one or two years. They still think I'm out to kill them, and they all put up their feathers. 
or when a cat or dog gets scared and puts up its fur, right? This is a, a remnant, which really doesn't serve a purpose for us now, but once did. Wisdom teeth is a good example. Tonsils, the coccyx, the tailbone is really fascinating. I'll get back to that in just a little bit. One of my favorites, though, is Darwin's tubercle, the ear mover. Some of you probably have ears that you can move. I envy you. Uh, my dad had that, but I somehow didn't get the trait or else I'm too incompetent to actuate it. Okay, so the purpose of ear moving was to be able to directionally locate different things like prey, right? And we don't need that anymore. So over time, those genes get uh, basically uh, corrupted because you don't have survival dependent upon it anymore. It's also why people like me who have lots of illnesses, I have lupus. Uh, if I have a genetic defect, none of them are fatal, but that's going to probably get passed along because I'm a good enough health due to modern medicine. I don't depend upon that anymore. I have really bad vision. I have like a minus 13 nearsightedness by, by birth, which is horrible. Back in the day, I wouldn't have made it to this age, right? But now that can get passed along. So that's how you account for things that are not useful anymore or non-functional or barely functional getting passed along. Uh, another example of this is you see these things called pharyngeal arches. This is in an embryonic development. They're not exactly gills, but they're parallel or homologous to them. You see this also in a picture of a giraffe I have here. Different animals like fish, giraffe, humans have a same structure that over time gets developed in different ways. That's a neat area. Perhaps one of my favorites I learned about just a couple of years ago in a research for this book I just wrote on the subject is vitelligen and DNA. Humans still have egg yolk producing DNA in them. Now, it's not functioning anymore, but it's in a corrupted form still present. Why would that be there? Which leads me to a really interesting subclass or separate piece of evidence related. This is called atavisms. Those fossils in our genes, sometimes they reactivate. And you have a trait appear that previously wasn't there. Babies are sometimes, human babies, sometimes born with tails. The rationale for that is that the long dormant DNA reactivates. Another example is sometimes chicken end up having teeth. I'm glad my chicken don't have teeth because they bite me a lot, they peck me. Um, and my understanding is that this usually ends up proving fatal. But chickens used to be dinosaurs, you know. They're the descendants, they're the ones that lived on. And in fact, this morning my kids were reading a book and they were speaking of a Tranodon aviary. Uh, that was really a funny experience because aviary birds, but yeah, birds are the descendants of these, the ones that survived. And sometimes they have an atavism that reactuates. Again, why would that be if not for evolution? Also, we could look at transitional structures that are present today and have developed over the centuries. The eye, sometimes it's said the eye could not have developed through evolution, but now we can provide pretty good mechanisms by which this happened. So if you begin here on the left, you can see basic pigment receptors in early sea creatures like the limpet. Then eventually you get to the mollusk, you get to the octopus with a full-fledged pit that's become an eye. That doesn't mean we have every last mechanism explained, guys. There will always be more gaps to fill in. But we have basic structures, or the wing. The wing is also sometimes said to be unable to have evolved but you can trace reasons for a wing like gliding or balance, or in the case of this ostrich, for running faster. So we can look at those. 
or the bacterial flagellum, the motor to which bacteria move, it's awfully complex. And how do you get this motor? It's interesting, as Father Ostriaco points out, that it's hollow. It's like a straw. And it was probably used for nutrient transfer or something of that nature before its present function to move the bacterium through the cell. Again, we need people to work on these matters. Another area, biogeography, the distribution of species throughout the world. We didn't know about plate tectonics until fairly recently. Why do you have volcanoes? Why do you have continental drift? Now we can actually measure those things. And what's interesting is certain continents have animals and plants that others don't, right? So why do the Aussies have their kangaroos and wallabies and we don't? Those evolved after the split from their common ancestor or why in the new world do we have tomatoes? Yes, we think of Italian as tomato. I love Italian food, but that's because of us, right? That's a new world plant. These things developed, evolved after the split. Then you have the things you find kind of everywhere. I like trilobites, the sea bugs of old. I have one on my desk at work. Pretty great things. They're all over the place. Or also, when you think about this, this is Pangaea when Earth was a single <laughs> continent on the map roughly 330 million years ago. When that splits off, which we can trace now, where I live in Kansas, you have the arrow here is the Western Interior Sea. And therefore, in the middle of Kansas, you have ancient oceans, which contain really neat fossils like this. In the Sternberg Museum in Hayes, Kansas, there's a fish within a fish. Uh, it, this fish ate a fish and it died and they both fossilized. This is where faith and evolution, my friends, just makes me overjoyed at how God works in the world. It's not a thing to be feared. It, it's just a marvel that how all of this happened to get to us. Two more pieces of evidence, though. Direct observation. You can observe evolution gradually through fast multiplying and dying species like the fruit fly, or more recently, through things like viruses such as COVID. Uh, and that's one way to do it. But the last evidence I think is the most interesting and compelling and most recent as well is comparative genomics, comparing the genomes of different species. I'm taking this chart from a really good book by an evangelical pair of authors. It's called Adam and the Genome. If you look at the evolution of a language like English on this slide, you have Old English, Shakespeare, Beowulf. We have a Bible verse up here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you can trace how little bits evolve over time and words are spelled differently. Like truth is spelled originally here, T-R-U-E-T-H, T-R-U-T-H-E, until we finally get to the modern English version. And actually, one of the reasons I love teaching is that you get new examples brought up. And just the other day, someone brought up to me a different variation on this. I think actually has more explanatory power. The Romance language, they all evolved from Latin, right? So really what you have here is over time, Latin becomes French. It becomes Italian. It becomes Spanish. Why does it become those different languages? This is key. It is because those language groups are split off. If they're still breeding and speaking together, you don't have a new language like that evolve. That's a good parallel for how we get the different species. We can get more technical about it, too. As the scientists who work on this study, humans are most closely related to chimpanzees. We broke off from them most recently, again, six to seven million years ago. Before that, gorillas, before that, orangutans. 
So you have sort of cousins, second cousins, third cousins, and you can go on. Eventually, we're related to bacteria down to the very bottom, right? Bananas, bacteria, et cetera. There's all relation there. And if you're a bio major, you'll get this especially, but you don't need to be a bio major. You can look at the mutations on specific genes. This is a, an olfactory gene. And you see at the top couple of lines, they have more or less the same mutations, which they had inherited from a common ancestor, not traced in this particular example. But after they split, you'll see sometimes humans and chimps have a common uh, mutation. But then after the split, they start getting individualized ones. So here you have a chimp mutation that we don't have. Here you have a gorilla, and here you have an orangutan. Bottom line is, we can trace the tree, and we know historically, not only by fossils, but also through genetics, which ones split from us and when. And using the average mutation rate, you can get a pretty good idea of when this occurred. Well, so much for that. Let's look at humans in relation to other closely related uh, brother, sister, cousins, if you will. Our species, if you are non-Sub-Saharan African, you have two to four percent roughly of your DNA from Neanderthals that we interbred with. Because humans arrived, we evolved in Africa. So if you're not a pure human from Africa, you have some of this. If you live in Southeast Asia, you have DNA from another extinct species called the Denisovans. Now you can debate, and this is a fun topic, whether those are humans or not, or they're subspecies of Homo sapiens, and that's something that people work on. Uh, but you do have that DNA in you. And if I may recommend a talk from the Thomistic Institute, look up Father Simon Gain, G-A-I-N-E, and he has a talk, I believe it's entitled, Did Christ Come to Save Neanderthals? And the answer he gives is yes. And it's, it's pretty compelling. So please look at that at some point if you're interested. But now I want to turn to our next topic, which is, how does God govern the world or create through evolution? So as Father Marius Tabachek, the Dominican, points out, technically he doesn't create through evolution. He creates by giving the world existence itself and giving us natures. He governs the world. He leads it to its goal or telos through evolution. I put up four points here that discuss how he does and doesn't do this. So first of all, God works through natural processes he doesn't just constitute another cause amongst others and fill in gaps. So he acts in a different but compatible order of causality. His is a vertical causality. He gives you a nature so that then you move yourself into action, which Thomas Aquinas refers to as primary and secondary causality. Um, so he's going to give you this ability, but it's him operating through you, much like a pianist playing a piano. The pianist is the primary cause. The piano really does play, but it's the secondary cause and can only do so because the pianist is moving it. Likewise, evolution can only happen because God is moving the whole process. He endows us creatures with the dignity of driving our own development, much like we drive fetal development and human parents procreate. We contribute to the existence of this child. Here I have four quotes that speak to the beauty of how God governs the universe through natural causes, including a picture of my daughter, Michaela, standing alongside dinosaur footprints in Utah this past year. During COVID, we got out and had fun in national parks. So what is this quote about from, um, from Ratzinger? Ratzinger says, 
that God works not next to nature, but precisely through or in it. Secondly, Darwin himself spoke of there being grandeur in this way of life, that through all these complex forms, there is a, a providence at work in it. And three, St. John Henry Newman, at the time of Darwin's Origin of Species, spoke of this being a larger idea of divine prescience and skill, divine foreknowledge, divine power. And as the evangelical biologist puts it, Dennis Venema, who is the wiser and more powerful creator? And I don't like the image of a machine or engineering for God, but just to run with it for a minute, who would be a better engineer? The one who creates a very neat toy or gadget, or the one who's so intelligent, he can create one that can create its own uh, through artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence depends upon someone who's intelligent making the artificial intelligence. So the analogy there is that God is so wise and powerful, he's able to create a universe which contributes to its own development. If you've ever seen the movie Master and Commander, Russell Crowe is this captain and he, he has his Royal Navy traveling all over the world. So they're in the Galapagos Islands and they encounter a stick bug. And the scientist actor, uh, I forgot his precise name, but he's been in a lot of movies, including the Marvel ones. And he's the medical doctor and he's studying these things. And a little kid who's on board, who's trained to be uh, a, a, an officer himself, asks this question. He says, does God make the creatures change? And uh, the scientist doctor says, certainly. The question is, they change themselves. There's a parallel here between the theory of gravity and the theory of evolution. And what is that? We have a high level of certainty in both cases. You don't infallibly prove either, but there's really no rival explanation that holds water. So there, that's the epistemic, the knowledge level. There's also a parallel causality that God works through these processes. So allow me to give you two illustrations. I owe these to my wife, so giving credit where credit's due. Very smart woman. She said, think about Dante. Dante ends his divine comedy speaking of God as the love that moves the sun and the other stars. And here's a, a vision he has of the celestial paradise. Is it false that God's love moves the universe and the stars if the Big Bang in its constant expansion also moves them? No, right? It's both and for a Catholic. So evolution doesn't make God any less involved in our world than he is involved in the Big Bang and cosmic development as a whole. Another example that I find very powerful is thinking about fetal development. This allows me to show some pictures of beautiful children in the womb. Okay, so you start off as a little dot, right? A fertilized ovum, a zygote. You can't even see it with the naked eye. And yet that embryo has the full genetic makeup of human person. In systems biology, we'd say it has the full system. It needs time to develop, uh, but there's no point at which it becomes human after that. It's either already human or it never becomes human. Okay, so then you divide, right? I use you on purpose, divide. You become a blastocyst. You're going to implant, implant in the uterine wall. You're going to look like an alien for a while, as in these photos. The neural tube begins to form. You can start feeling pain very early on in the pregnancy. Eventually, you're able to suck your thumb. This beautiful photo. And then, God willing, you pop out. And that's one of the most beautiful 
things a person can experience in this life is the birth of a baby. Here's the salient point. Would it be pious to look at all of that and how we can explain field development and say, no, God knit me together in my mother's womb. It's both. Right? Psalm 139 is still true. It's using metaphorical language. God causes this whole process, but he's also endowing human fathers and mothers, especially the mother, with the ability to form the baby in her womb. God knits through her. This leads me to the last part of my talk, where I want to discuss how to interpret the scriptural passage or passages that seem to contradict evolution or vice versa. And for this, I want to start with two principles from St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelical doctor. Okay, so Aquinas will say that if you encounter a passage that seems to contradict the faith, uh, what you want to first of all do is hold fast to the truth of Scripture without wavering. That's a non-negotiable for a Christian. The Scriptures are true. Uh, in Catholicism, we call that the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Secondly, though, you must be willing to abandon a particular interpretation of Scripture if it's proven to be false. Why? You have the great word lest invoked. Lest Scripture be exposed to the ridicule of unbelievers and obstacles posed to their belief. Aquinas quotes St. Augustine, who says, how can outsiders believe our books when they catch a Christian committing an error about something that they know very well? So here's, here's the crux of it, guys. You can be a good Christian and have no love for evolution. The problem is, do you make the faith look absurd? And also because we want to know the truth of things. The more we know the truth, the, the more we glorify God and can love God. So with that said, turning from Aquinas, here are the Catholic Church's principles that have been articulated since the Second Vatican Council in the 60s. Pope Benedict, the, the Bible scholar Pope, does a particularly good job at this as well. So I first of all would say, to interpret a difficult biblical passage right, you have to understand its historical context and literary form. For instance, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, so-called primeval history, are of a different literary form than the rest of Genesis. Uh, and we'll talk about that specific form here in a moment, but that's significant. Also to know why it was written. The book of Genesis developed over many centuries, uh, and it reached its final form after the Babylonian exile in the 500s before Christ. It's partly a response to that. And its final form showing why they got into exile, why they died by breaking God's laws. More on that in a minute. Two, remember what the catechism calls divine pedagogy. It's a beautiful paragraph where the catechism says, God reveals himself to man gradually. He prepares him by stages to welcome Jesus Christ in the flesh. An example of that would be if God tried to teach the Trinity at the beginning of the Israelite faith, Back in Abraham's day, before there was an Israel, they would have made the Trinity into three different gods because they were polytheists. So he had to nail down monotheism. Then he had to get down the concept that God is all good. That's another T.I. talk I get why, about God commanding violence in the Old Testament. And then you can nail down the three persons that God is love. And by the way, love your enemies. That's not a natural thing to do. It takes time. Similarly, with the, the facts of science. Part of the issue of why science seems so contradictory is, A, they weren't concerned with the science, but B, they just didn't know the modern science that we know today. 
as Pope Benedict says, God struggled, quote unquote, to make himself known to us over time through millennia of salvation history. But now with Christ, we can look back on it. And so you have to interpret the whole Old Testament as true, but a preparation for Christ, who is the truth. And then finally, to ascertain what is the inerrant message scripture is teaching, Second Vatican Council says, ask what's being affirmed or taught. In other words, what's the essential point? What is its message in its own day to its original audience? Uh, there's an evangelical scholar I like when he says, you have to remember that when you're reading the Bible, you're reading someone else's mail, 2,000 plus year old mail. So to understand the, the point of that mail, which is also written for you, you had to first know what it meant to the original recipient, and then you can begin to apply it to yourself. So what is the, the Bible teaching? What is it not teaching? Pope Benedict uses the language of kernel and shell as one illustration. Um, you, you crack open that beautiful shell to get to the meat of the peanut in this case. Uh, the shell, if that image doesn't float your boat, another good illustration is the vehicle versus the main content. So the literary vehicle of Genesis 1 through 11, 1 through 3 in particular, is God walking in a garden, seven days of creation, the serpent who talks, all these different things. We're going to ascertain in a minute what is the message, though. And so here is your historical context. I put up a tablet of the Babylonian epic Gilgamesh, which some of you may have read in a class before. These are texts which contain the same sorts of stories older than the Bible, which the Bible is an inspired response to. All right, so I'm going to then talk about the genre. How does it respond? Remember I discussed a little bit ago how people have misunderstandings of the word theory? Another word that is often greatly misunderstood is myth. So, for example, top 10 myths about apples, top 10 myths about Catholicism, top 10 myths about XYZ. But the way that the great literary masters say C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, um, J.R.R. Tolkien understand myth is it's a real but unfocused glimpse of divine truth falling on the human imagination. It's eminently real, but it presents the real, as Chesterton says, through the faculty of the imagination rather than through the pure intellect. So it reads differently than the genre of Thomas's Summa Theologica, but it's also conveying truth. Uh, Lewis says that because the Jews were the chosen people, their mythology was the chosen mythology. It was the earliest vehicle to convey the sacred truths about God and man. And the popes followed suit. John Paul II, Pope Benedict, they speak of myth in relation to this as well. Benedict adds another layer. It's myth, but it's also anti-myth. The biblical story is demythologizing these other nations. For instance, in the Babylonian story Enuma Elish, the world is created when the high god of Babylon slays the great sea dragon, Tiamat, he divides her into two. She's the waters, waters above the heavens, water below the heavens. And he creates the world out of her guts. Then Marduk slays her consort, Kingu, and creates humans out of his guts. The Bible, what does it do? God speaks creation. There's no war, there's no theomachy. God is sovereign. And the world emerges through his logos, through his reason, and through his love. And so it sounds superficially similar, 
and it emerges from that context of these ancient myths, but at the same time, it's doing something quite different. Here's one way to put this, guys, is that the Bible is concerned with the ontological level. Science is concerned with the phenomenological level, level of appearances, the level of the empirical. So the Bible teaches us things like, who is God? Why did God make things? What are things in their essence? How we should live? Evolution studies things like, when did we evolve? Where? What were the mechanisms by which these things happened? They're different questions. They're both important. And you really need both. And with that, I want to apply it to just a few brief passages to give you a sense of the way this works so you can then do this to others for yourselves. Okay, so concrete passage number one is the seven days of creation. Did the Jewish authors think that the world arose over seven days? Well, we can't probe into their heads anymore. Not that you should ever probe into someone's head, but you, you can't know that for sure. But it seems highly likely they didn't mean this in a 24-hour way. One reason being that you don't even have the sun and the moon by which we measure 24-hour days on Earth until day four. Uh, the structure is deliberately symbolic, as biblical scholars know very well. It's meant to take place over seven days to culminate in the temple. God rests, he Shabbats on the seventh day. And so you're called to have Shabbat and rest with God on the seventh day. Creation is a temple, a tabernacle. It's where God resides. The whole earth is his dwelling. And so you have this creation of spaces on the left side of the slide and the things that fill them on the right side, culminating in Sabbath. As Pope Benedict says in his beautiful book, Spirit of the Liturgy, the goal of creation is worship of God. And that's significant because if we don't have a relationship with God and worship, we miss the very point of existence. Passage number two is Adam himself. Genesis 2, especially verse 7. The Lord God formed man, Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So Adam means human being. And you can talk about whether this was his actual physical name or not. They didn't speak Hebrew back then. We're talking 200,000 years ago, give or take or depending on your dating, maybe 100,000 years ago, or if you date humans back to Homo erectus, 2 million years ago. Bottom line is we're talking a very long time ago. And what is the significance of Adam? He is man. As Pope Benedict says, this is the story about the first man and every man. Every human is Adam. We're all, both for the better or worse, together with him. We're one person. And so when he, he sins, it affects all of us as well. What does this dust mean? Two points. One is we're connected to the rest of creation. They didn't know about evolution here. But Pope Benedict says it's fascinating that this passage <coughs> echoes something like evolution. Also, dust, as the great biblical scholar from Judaism, Amy Jill Levine, says, it's an image of our death as well. Remember Ash Wednesday, man, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So man is mortal. Man is connected to the rest of creation, and yet the image of the breath is not meant to be God physically breathing into us because he doesn't have a body at this point. It's meant to show that we have the ruach, the spirit, something that no other creature has. And thus, while we're connected to creation, we also are above it. To put it in modern terms, while we've evolved, we're not merely the product of evolution. And because of that, we have a special responsibility for creation. We don't blame beavers for building dams and messing up rivers. Uh, we do blame mosquitoes, 
we shouldn't really probably blame mosquitoes, though. They're not being angry at us. But you do blame humans because we're responsible and we have a moral conscience. We have a relationship with God that no other creature enjoys. That's the meaning of the breath of life. And finally, Eve. Eve, as we know, is created from Adam's rib. Why the rib? A couple of points. It's not a physical point. It is equality. She's not created from his foot. She's not below him. As you see in some myths, like there's a Hindu myth to that effect. She's not from his head. She's from his side. So they're equal. Another thing to that is we read, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, right? This is showing the reason for marriage. We need marriage in order to be complete again. That's what the Bible is trying to teach there. So man and woman are complementary. They're not just interchangeable. And we're called by a sacred vocation to marriage and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those things cannot be taught through empirical science. You can describe a lot of the processes, but at the end of the day, they just address different issues and they are complementary issues. To return to the original question then, does evolution undermine Christianity? Not at all. In fact, it needs Christianity. You need both, as Pope John Paul said, to draw one another more deeply into the fullness of reality. Thank you very much. And I've put up some recommended sources on this list. The top one uh, inspired by our institute that sponsors this is called Thomistic Evolution, a great, easy to read, but deep book by various Dominicans. It's the number one go-to resource on this topic I give. The second one I also recommend is from a friend of mine who teaches at Notre Dame, Chris Badlow, who has Faith, Science, and Reason. And he has a forthcoming book next month. It's called Creation, a Catholic Perspective or something like that. But any of these resources, including mine that will come out in about six months, I highly recommend. Um, so now I'm open to Q&A. And I have, uh, what would you say, Jordan, we have 10 minutes or something like that? Um, what time is it? It's 6.20. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're scheduled at 6.30. So if we have any questions, I'll use my eyes to help Dr. Ramage here um, point out anyone, any questions. Yes. How do we, like, reconcile the, like, because, like, when I think of evolution, I think of, like, this very, like, cutthroat, almost, like, survival of the fittest type, um, like, view of what evolution is. How do we, like, reconcile that with, like, the merciful God that we learn? Yeah. Yeah, and I'll repeat the question so listeners could hear it. How do you reconcile the goodness of God with all the, the bloodbath of evolution? Uh, nature red in tru truth and claws, Tennyson said. And the same problem that's important to remember applies regardless of whether evolution were even true. You know, why do so many babies die in the womb? Dostoyevsky's famous Grand Inquisitor, how can children suffer so much? Um, why is there all this death? So it's a subset of the same problem, the problem of theodicy or how is God justified? Um, I wrote an article you can find on my website about this. Um, there was a journal of religions that we did a whole a whole series on this very topic. Let me give you just one angle into this. Uh, and there's, this is not a definitive answer. You have different reflections on it. But the suffering in our, our earth here, it indicates that in some way the shape of the world is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. Uh, it's grounded in the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ is he through whom all things were created, as Paul says. 
So all things are somehow entwined in that. And there's a connection between death and sin for sure. Um, but also there's a redemption through it. And so it seems that the creatures share in the sufferings of Christ and so therefore have a redemptive value to them. I think that's really the ultimate answer. But then there's another answer you can give. Um, a, a very traditional answer would be Adam's sin caused all the suffering. So there are multiple options I like to lay out to people. Uh, but Thomas Aquinas, who held a very traditional position on this, fascinatingly, um, he, he himself saw that baptism, which could have taken away your sins. I mean, could, it does take away your sins. It could have taken away your suffering and death immediately. He says that God allowed that not to occur immediately to help you participate and co-redeem with Christ, basically. But those are some initial thoughts. And if you want to talk afterwards, I can also share with you the exact article I wrote that develops that more fully. Thank you. Thanks for the great talk. That was really, really very clear. I appreciate it. What's, um, how, how do we account for, uh, or can we preserve hylomorphism and talk about natures through constant evolution? Uh, maybe with spiritual substances, but I'm not sure about anything else. It is really difficult. Yeah, with besides man, it, it's challenging. I mean, it's kind of like the old uh, whose ship was it? Thucydides? No, the uh, you know you change out a plank, old point, you have a different ship, right? Theseus, uh, Theseus right? Thank you. So uh, I don't have a solid answer. I leave that to the Dominicans. But Father Marius Tabachek, he's wonderful in Polish, and I can't spell his name. But if you look up Marius with a Z on the end, Tabachek, he has a lot of great Thomistic framework for this in order to explain it. But yeah, with man, it's simpler because you can have, and we do have, biological continuity with our evolutionary ancestors. And yet there's also a qualitative difference when you have the infusion of the rational soul. One thing I really like that Father Ostriaco, among others, does a nice job on is that a lot of people think the soul is sort of separate from the body and they're utterly united. They're distinct but not separate. So it stands to reason that Whatever happens to make us fully human, that Rubicon of humanity that's crossed, it's accompanied by some genetic change as well. And so one thing that a lot of people are positing these days is that you could have, at least for humans, you could have biological homo sapiens that's going to look virtually the same, but subtle genetic changes that result in higher capacities, namely language. And, and so that's one thing with humans specifically. As for other animals, yeah, I mean, we know that there's a difference at some point between, uh, you know, a chicken and an ostrich. But at what point does that exactly occur if you had the full fossil evidence is, is honestly above my pay grade. But we should chat more afterwards. I mean, does this imply <laughs> acceptance of polygenism? And if so, what, what is the effect on Catholic tradition? Good. So polygenism, for those who don't know, is the hypothesis that you have multiple origins of humanity. So polygenism, back in 1950, when Pius XII dealt with it, I have a lot of interesting background on this. He was targeting the polygenism when he's very down on polygenism because it was a multi-regional hypothesis. At that time, people posited that human races arose on different continents, and they did that to justify racism. Turns out we all came from Africa. So no racism at all is justifiable. But um, so evolution, ironically, actually is anti-racist, if you understand it properly. Um, but it's also possibly quite more complicated. So a proper version of polygenism, where you have our DNA being drawn from different branches 
is highly likely. And again, it looks like we have Neanderthal DNA in us for, for certain. And depending on where you're from, other extinct hominins. Um, were there ever two directly people created out of nothing? The science does not point to that. In fact, it points to there was always at least a breeding population of 10,000 out of which the first two came. So it, it could happen a number of ways. One is one person had the, the final mutations that made us capable of bearing the image of God, abstract thought, language, religion, etc. Or it could happen that God arranged it so that two people did it at the same time. Um, but regardless, there was never a case where there was just one human isolated. Uh, that's what it sure seems to be anyway. But the church is, is not against polygenism correctly understood. But what's ironic is that monogenism, one line, uh, is actually highly likely that there was one true first human is, is a quite scientifically likely scenario, which I find I find pretty great. Great. I think we have time for one more question, if there is one. Yes. Yeah, great talk, uh, Dr. Ramage. Um, an argument that I've always heard or I found relatively quite convincing against evolution, I just wonder if you could address it. So they look at you know this, the story of creation found in Genesis, and looking at, as you point out, Bennett is calling how all creation is ordered to worship, and man then is the apex, if you will, of creation, acting as the vice region, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, being the voice of all creation and maintaining the order that was created. Does a radical neo-Darwinism, -Dar where you have trans-species evolution, yeah. undercut the hierarchy of being? Ah. Uh. Yeah, some biologists do think that we're no more special, right, than anything else. Whereas I, I think the evidence equally or more points towards us being special, uh, that there's a, a clear hierarchy. Um, and so, yes, you'll, you'll people say this. And on a phenomenological level, this is true. We're no more adapted than beetles are. In fact, beetles seem to be way more adaptable than us. There are way too many beetles on this planet, biologically. <laughs> Bacteria, obviously, they've been around for three and a half billion years. They're arguably better adapted. But I just think people are being disingenuous if they if they don't think the skeptic, if you will, is being disingenuous and they don't think anything special about humans. And the way that Pope Francis talks about this in his encyclical on the environment, Laudato to see, is that we would have no responsibility towards creation and stewardship if we weren't special. So the Catholic Church can look at the same data and say there is a hierarchy. You know, and humans wedding this with the biblical doctrinal tradition are the image of God. And, and some people may not like to hear that, but sort of common sense also bears it out. So that's that's something I have to say about that anyway. Great, well, thank you all very much for your time. I'll stick around for some questions if you have more and, and you all have a blessed evening.